0: Welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. We're taking your phone calls at 877-753-3341. We only have one line left open. If you want to jump in right at the start before we go to the phone calls, um, just want to make sure you are aware of the fact that uh, American Vision has put out uh, Against All Opposition, Defending the Christian Worldview by Greg Bonson, uh, edited by Gary DeMar, And, uh, so when people are always asking about books on presuppositionalism and things like that, uh, there are a number and most of them actually are designed to be sort of an intro type thing. Jason Lyle's uh, work and, uh, Pratt's work and things like that. And there are a few, if I don't mention them, it's not because I don't recommend them or something. I just haven't read all of them. Um, we've been sent many of them over the years and i I do need to go through my library and put them all together so that maybe we could put a bibliography together or something but um uh you can go to american vision and get against all opposition by greg bonson also coming up actually it's probably going on right now we're actually probably actually competing Um, So you'll probably need to uh, uh, listen to this debate. But uh, Chris Arnson on Iron Sharpens Iron is doing a very important debate. I hope he doesn't have technical difficulties, and I hope their server can um, survive the strain. Um, They are having a debate on hyperpreterism with uh, the gentleman who's best known for it, and his former right-hand man, which is really interesting. And I'm personally really looking forward. I hope that the uh, MP3 of today's version part is available uh, by this evening or by early, early, early tomorrow morning when I do an outside ride. Um, that's definitely something I want to be uh, listening to and, uh, and following along with. So that will be, uh, be great. So Iron Sharpens Iron, uh, Chris Aronsen, uh look him up. Um, I've been on this program many times, and this is this is a big. It's two day debate, uh, two parts. And in fact, when I had seen the original thesis, the original arrangement, where the hyper uh is not having to defend anything, I was like, "It's a two part debate. Why uh, why not have the first, you know, one person to def- have the positive the one time and the negative the second time? And that that seems fair if you got two parts and." So that, that actually, my suggestion, actually um, resulted in a switching of who was bearing the burden on one of the two parts. So I think it's just fair. Um, so anyways, so keep an eye out for uh, that. And I don't think I need to be plugging that in for any particular reason, but I did anyways. All right, let's uh, go to our phone calls and then press forward with our studies. Let's uh, talk with uh, Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick.
1: Hi, how are you doing today, Dr. White? Doing good. Great. So uh, there has been some uh, discussion, maybe cordial cordial, uh, disagreement uh, among a few people in my church about a catechism question, and it comes from the New City Catechism. And the question is, did God create us unable to keep his law? And then the answer given in the catechism, well, the kids' catechism, is no, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. And so the controversy has been about whether or not humans, and in particular Adam and Eve, were originally uh, created with the capacity to obey God. And so from the perspective of God's decree, as I understand it, Adam and Eve did just as God willed, and so in, in, in that sense, they could not have done anything else than what they did, but
0: well, I guess well, uh,
1: my, my question would be more like what does the Bible communicate about the original state of Adam and Eve, and in particular their ability to obey before the fall?
0: Yeah, there's no question the Catechism is correct. Um, the Catechism is simply reflecting what all Orthodox Christians have believed from the beginning, and that is that God created man uh, good, uh, in fact he was very good, and uh, there is no created necessity in Adam uh, to sin. It was not that there was a automatically provided uh, defect that would, that would guarantee this, um, anything along those lines uh, whatsoever. Um, we, we must differentiate between the secret decree and the revealed will of God. The revelation of God is that man was created uh, uh, upright, upright, and the content of the decree is not something that is, is uh, something that Adam had access to, or it's not God standing behind Adam with a gun saying you're going to sin, or, or any of those things. Uh, so you, we have to be very, very careful at this point, because if we take the concept of the decree and claim to have some type of knowledge of it within time... Uh, that's going to cause a, a, a real a real major problem. Um, so so no, uh, we can we can affirm that in God's decree that uh, all of this was exactly what God intended. Uh, but at the same time, you have to recognize the the unity that exists between that decree and the revelation that God gives to us. That God gave to Adam. Um, that uh, comes to us in Scripture, and the law, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all of which comes after Adam. Adam is – I've used him as an example many, many times – of someone that it's absolutely useless to speculate about because we have basically – no more than, at maximum, two chapters worth of revelation about anything uh, pre-Fall. Right. Everything after that's afterwards. So it's pure speculation for anybody, even though a lot of people try to do that. And, of course, that's where Jonathan Edwards got into trouble, is he attempted to dig into what we don't have sufficient uh, revelation to answer questions about, and ended up, uh, even in John Gersner's opinion, who is a huge Jonathan Edwards fan— Uh, in a morass of contradiction. And so, uh, no, we have to affirm that Adam was made uh, good, um, that he had had the capacity in and of himself to do what was right. That doesn't answer the question as to whether it was God's intention for what happened to happen. The issue is, did he have that potentiality? Did, Did he have that capacity? To say he didn't is to say he was created defective and therefore uh, was created to fall by nature. And that's, that's, not what, uh, that, that's not what has ever been affirmed. Because if you say that, then there was actually no intentionality on Adam's part. There was no rebellion. There was no deception. There was, he did what, what he was supposed to do. You're sort of stuck with the Mormon view at that point because they actually say Adam fell upward. Um, that in the preexistence it was determined that he would partake of the fruit so that mankind could come into existence because Eve was going to fall, so he had to fall so he could be mortal, and then have he wouldn't be able to have children with her if he didn't do the same thing, so he actually fell upward. Um, so, no, there was a, there was a true fall, um, and the fact that that was decreed does not make it any less of a true fall. And if we don't affirm it that way, then you end up with uh, falling one side or the other off the cliff.
1: Gotcha. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. That, that really, uh, excellent. thank you.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Nick. All righty. That's one. We got, uh, three more to go, and let's talk to Tyler about the Septuagint.
2: Hi,
3: Dr. White, how are you? Doing good. All right, so I begin my Greek studies here soon for, uh, seminary, and so I bought the reader's edition of the
0: Septuagint. Ah, uh, the two-volume? Yeah, and I know noted. What was that? The two-volume readers? Yes, sir. Yes, Yes, I, I hate so, to, I hate I hate to tell you, Tyler, but um, you will never n- ever own as nice a version of the two volume Reader Septuagint as I will soon have from Post Tenebris Lux Bible rebinding, um, which yeah, has. I
3: will be sending my grandmother's Bible to him in
0: August. <laughs> well, uh, but he has my Reader's edition of the Septuagint oh. right now, and uh, he's oh. up. the The pages have already been gilded and i've already seen uh the blue and gray uh dual uh leather cover uh is being is being put together so i just i just don't want you to feel badly once i you show know, this <laughs> this is just cruel that you do this. <laughs>
4: this is just cruel i just it's it's like what
0: <laughs>
4: well, well, I, I, sometimes i'm
0: coveting <laughs> that's the whole reason for it tyler is isn't that pretty obvious <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Absolutely. this is this is sort of a backwards advertisement for Jeffrey and the, and the <laughs> folks there. But no, he's uh, he's working on it, and um, uh, I saw I saw the the gilding that was done, and as you know, those are huge volumes. And oh, I yeah. I had first I had first talked to him and asked him, would it be possible to bind them together? And he's like, not really, <laughs> not <laughs> not really. So it's like, okay, so we'll stick with the the two volumes. But the two volumes are going to be. Uh, the leather is going to be reversed on each one, so you can tell which volume is which. So one's going to have a, a gray leather spine with blue, and another will have a blue leather spine with gray, and it's, it's just going to be absolutely awesome. But, that anyway. sounds awesome. Yes, yes. So anyways, uh, thank you for giving me that, that opportunity of doing a little bit of an advertisement there for, uh, for Brother oh, Jeffrey.
3: Anytime. He can pay me later. All right. <laughs> That's uh. right. And so, me, I was I was wondering as I'm looking through, as I'm scanning through, I noticed it contains the
1: Deuterocanonical book. Yep.
3: And I was wondering, since the Septuagint is what Jesus and all them in the early church used, uh, were those included back then, or yeah. were those added for our edition today?
0: Well, of course, we do not have any complete Septuagints from the days of Jesus. Uh, we have fragments. We have singular books. We have portions. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that, that is that's not so much a, a subject question as it is a canon question. In older um, in older materials, you will read about the Palestinian canon and the Alexandrian canon. And the assumption was many years ago that the Palestinian Jews had a different canon than the Alexandrian Jews. That the Palestinian Jews had what we would have in the Protestant canon and that the Alexandrian Jews had an expanded canon that included the Deuteroc- Deuterocanonicals. I would recommend a, a, a book. Um, it's getting older now. It's getting up to 40 years, but it's still uh, fairly relevant along these lines. Um, and uh, uh, that is the Old Testament canon, New Testament church by uh, Roger Beckwith. And he really goes in depth. It's very scholarly, but he really goes in depth in Refuting the idea, and most scholars who study this area today no longer hold that there were two different canons. There was only one Jewish canon, and uh, that um, the Jewish people never embraced those two canonical books as canon scripture. So the the what's what's obvious and just become obvious once you've learned enough Greek to be really doing much with with that nice uh, two volumes that you've got um, is that the certain portions of the Greek Septuagint were written at a very... um, were translated at a very high level. So the Pentateuch is excellent. It's really, really well done. Uh, There are a couple other sections that are really, really well done. And then there are other sections that are not really well done uh, at all. And what that means is the Septuagint was not translated by one group at one time. It came into existence over a period of time. And so um, what would have been the form early on or even in the days of jesus uh and then our earliest versions uh our earliest versions that would give us an idea of what was contained altogether come from 3 to 400 about 300 years after after the days of christ so uh in palestine obviously in israel uh in that geographical location uh all the evidence is that the jewish people did not accept these as uh, canonical they were not laid up in the temple and so whatever because see we we always think of the Septuagint as a as a single uh as a single volume uh something that we can just grab hold of i'm not sure what happened to to mine in here I, i thought i had one in here um let's see well i okay there it is hold on a second all right, there we go. Uh, here's here's a nice... Uh, this was bound many, many years ago, but this is my Rolf's uh, subjugant here. And so when we think of the subjugant, we think of something like this, a, a single volume. It, it almost never existed like this. Um, this is a modern innovation. The, the vast majority of them... Well, first of all, they would have been on scrolls uh, in mm-hmm. in the ancient world. And then once Christians started utilizing them. Uh, Christians just, maybe it was so that they could differentiate themselves from the the synagogue. There's a lot of different theories about this, but Christians just didn't do scrolls. They didn't like doing scrolls. And so once you start getting Codex versions, then uh, those books start getting uh, uh, collected together and included within the Tanakh in, in Christian versions because... Uh, we do know that by the time of uh, the Council of Nicaea and and that time onward, um, not only was the had the Septuagint become the Bible of the early church, uh, but those books were being included uh, within the uh, the Canon of the Old Testament at that point, which led to the, the initial controversies concerning whether those books were considered canonical or not. So as early as Melito Sardis uh, in the second century, there is controversy uh, being discussed as to whether those those books are to be considered canonical or not. He makes inquiries into Israel, discovers the Jews have never accepted them, and so he rejects them. Uh, Jerome does the same thing. And so Jerome does not translate the Deuterocanonicals for the Latin Vulgate until the very last, and you can tell he didn't do a very good job because he did not believe uh, that they were, in fact, um, a, a canon scripture. Uh, he and Augustine argue about the subject because in North Africa they are accepted as, as canon scripture. They argue about the subject, and it's interesting that Augustine, one of Augustine's arguments is that he thinks that they were a part of the Hebrew canon. Well, he was wrong. And mm-hmm. so if, if, he, if he had had the right information about that, if he had access uh, to the, the sources Jerome did, Jerome was in Bethlehem for crying out loud, he, he, he had access to all the, all the Jewish scholars he wanted to talk to, uh, but mm-hmm. Augustine did not uh, in Hippo. So uh, if he had had access to that, he would have had to have taken a different, different perspective. So down through history, there are two streams as to the deuterocanonical books. And that continues all the way to the time of the Reformation, and that's found amongst popes. Uh, Pope uh, Gregory the Great rejected uh, the Deuterocanonical books as being canonical, uh, all the way down to the days of Cardinal Cayetan, who was the one who interviewed Luther. And he had written a commentary on the Bible, which rejected—he had read Jerome, so he rejected the uh, Deuterocanonical books. And when Trent uh, canonized them formally in April of 1546— you don't have a bunch of scholars there sifting through ancient materials to come to a conclusion. They are reacting against Luther's rejection of those books. Um, it, it's it, it, they they don't they don't answer what Caietan had said or what anybody else had said. They just simply are re- reacting to uh, to Luther. So um, when you get your when you get your earliest Septuagint copies today, they're Christian. They're not Jewish. Okay. And though they, so they do contain them. But as to what the Jews would have had, there's no reason to believe that in the days of Jesus in Israel that there would have been scrolls of those books that would have, uh, the term that they used was to make the hands dirty, uh, that they would have considered holy for, from, from touching them because they, just, they were never laid up in the temple. Uh, and that was even 200 years, 200 years before Christ, The canonical books of the Tanakh, which we would call the 39 books, they numbered them 22 to 24 because they did not separate out the minor prophets. They were all one book. Um, And then some of the major prophets included some of the, like, Lamentations was in Jeremiah, so on and so forth. They had 22 to 24 books, same list that we have today. Uh, they were laid up in the temple and were considered to make the hands dirty because they were, they were holy. That's never the case with the, uh, with the Deuterocanonical books. They're, they're just never treated okay. that way. And in fact, when you read them, you discover that they recognize the threefold canon of the Hebrew Old Testament already existed by the time they were written. Um, so it's, it's pretty straightforward as, as far as that goes. But the earliest manuscripts we have, the subject, all seem to be in, of Christian origin, not Jewish origin. And so that okay. that enters into that, okay. Um, thank you. You're most welcome. Have a great day. You too. All right, bye bye. All right, didn't expect to. <laughs> we already jumped into church history there, but um, oh, by the way, if if you want more on that uh, on that subject, then um, we've done two debates on the subject of the canonicity of the apocrypha and. <sighs> I know that I've given presentations at numerous conferences uh, since the '90s on the subject of the apocrypha, the deuterocanonical books. There may is there something in in our in our sermon audio stuff on that because um, I, I I know I have. It's not the most scintillating stuff, but again, neither is Manichaeism, and we've done that too. Uh, but uh, if you want to hear at least a rundown of those things. Uh, then you've got the really early 1993 debate with uh, Jerry Matics from uh, Boston College. And then we have, of course, the uh, great debate with Gary Machuda uh, from Long Island. I'm wondering if you may have done some
4: dividing lines building up to that
0: because you tend to do that
4: when before a debate you would tend to. It's possible review
0: that. So. Well, not not before Boston College, obviously, no, but, but I uh, mean the one uh, It's possible. Yeah. It's
4: possible. So around that time. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I know I've, I've, I have an entire uh, really lengthy presentation on the uh, patristic evidences and who lined up on what side and all sorts of stuff like that. So there is more out there, but the Beckwith book goes into a tremendous amount of detail. So, uh, okay, let's uh, talk to uh, Lauren. Hi, Lauren.
2: Hi, Dr. White. Hello. Uh, Hello. Uh, I just wanted to first say uh, from my husband and I to you, Rich, thank you so much for your ministry. You two really have had such a profound effect on our walk, and and, uh, we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts.
0: Well, that's great. Thank Um, you.
2: Okay. My question is, and it's... I don't know how to word it exactly, but um, I, I know that the Lord has saved me. I know that I love Him. I love Him very much. But this, I think about this often. I, I go about my days sometimes, and I don't even think about the Lord, and I, I, I know that I'm not loving Him with all my heart, soul, mind, strength perfectly. And so um, my question to you, it's kind of weird, I think, but my question is, and I am constant sin because I, that's a command, and I, I can't keep that commandment. You know, to love Him perfectly all the time, or have I ever loved Him perfectly, or can we in this life? And I, I think about that a lot. And I was wondering what you would say to a question like that.
0: Well, if you uh, if you define imperfection as sin. Um, then uh, you know we do not experience perfection in this life, and so if if you if you take that perspective, then we are in constant sin up until uh, the eschaton and, and the final judgment, and uh, well, basically until we die and are and are resurrected and, and are fully sanctified. Um, but that's I'm not sure if that's the best way to to really look at it because. When you talk about someone who being in constant sin, you're talking normally. When we describe it in that way, we're talking about someone who is uh, either struggling with or has given into some type of abiding sin in their life that um, that just simply um, they they will not stop committing, and um, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a different thing than. Uh, sinless perfectionism, because, again, if, if, if we define it in that way, then we would have to believe in sinless perfectionism. We would have to believe oh. um, that that once we are saved, then we are going to be made sinlessly perfect, and right. th- therefore would not, would not be experiencing uh, sin, um, because... It's true. The only one who has loved the Father perfectly, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, is is the Lord Jesus himself, and that's why we need to have his righteousness uh, Mm -hmm. to be able to stand before a holy God. Um, But yeah, no, on a a theological and pastoral level, I would differentiate between the idea of being in constant sin as imperfection and being in constant sin as a certain type of sin absolutely... um, rules one's life one cannot stop oneself from from engaging and you know we can talk about all sorts of various forms of addictions and things like that that they clearly do demonstrate a level of idolatry in our lives that we love something far more than we love than we love god um but i mean you technically could make the argument that as long as there is any idolatry whatsoever and really. You can make the technical argument that all sin is a form of idolatry. Uh, you're putting yourself before the Creator. Uh, yeah. If you go that direction, then the only way out would be to believe in a doctrine of sinless perfection, um, and then you don't need a, a yeah. mediator any longer.
2: Right? Yeah, and and yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it's not a, a, like a rebellion thing. It's just that I, I think about it. I, I really want to love Him perfectly, but I can't. Yeah, you know, and I know that. Uh, and so that that's been on my mind for a couple of years, and I thought I'm going to call Doctor White and ask him what he thinks. So um, <laughs> that makes a lot more sense than because it's not a rebellious thing that I don't want to. Right.
4: Um, you know, when
2: we gather with the saints uh, um, on the Lord's Day, it's like little splashovers of heaven. It's, it's so wonderful, and I I wish that I could you know feel like that you know twenty four seven. But uh, I just thought it was an—it's kind of a weird question. But I, I knew that you would answer it well, okay, and well, I certainly appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Lauren.
2: Okay. God bless you. All right. God bye
0: bless. Bye bye. All right. Last call, real quick here. Oh my! Someone in the uh, in the frozen tundra of uh, Canada. Hello, Chris.
3: Hello, Doctor White. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, this is okay. So <laughs> this is the second time. I've uh, called. I called last year in April, and the same joke, you called it Canadia.
0: Oh, did I? Well, there you go. You may have been the last person to call from Canadia, so.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I called last year to uh, ask a question about elect infants and the Baptist Confession, and um, since then, finished engineering, got accepted to Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary.
0: Covenant Southwest?
3: Sorry, Covenant Baptist.
0: Oh, covenant baptist oh, okay I'm, I'm, yeah, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm having a little hard hard time hearing it's a little bit uh, mushy so
3: okay can you hear me now yes 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 okay uh, i'll yeah i'll get to my question um and my apologies to rich i uh, said textual variant at first corinthians 11 16 it's not a textual variant it's just a difference of translation
0: oh okay. uh, whereas
3: whereas the so my apologies to rich but Whereas the ESV says, um, if anyone is contentious, we have no such practice, and neither do the churches of God. The uh, New American Standard reads, we have no other practice, and neither do the churches of God. And in the footnotes on the NASV, I actually have it both of them pulled up on Logos on my phone, um, it says literally such. So the word other could be interchanged with the word such, but um, it seems like whether you use the word such or other, Completely changes what that verse is intending to communicate. So, since you were on that critical consultant board or whatever it was, yeah, that, does, that doesn't
0: standard. mean I doesn't have doesn't mean I had anything to do with the rendering of this. critical consultant's oh. just simply like would deal with textual questions of textual variants that came up later on and stuff like that. But so so right. if but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So, okay, um, this is section about head coverings I never get into, but um a lot of the issues here are is is punctuation issues and how you break up these sentences does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair it is a dishonor to him but if a woman has long hair it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious we have um uh Altain normally is such of such kind. Uh, we do not have uh, such kind of a practice nor have the churches of God. And so the question would be what's the practice in reference to? And again, uh-huh. that really depends on how you have um, punctuated the preceding couple of sentences as to what the reference is there. I am certain there are entire in-depth discussions and arguments on both sides. I've never read them and couldn't help you with them, even if I tried.
3: Okay. Well, I yeah, I um, haven't taken Greek yet. I just uh, finished my first two levels of Hebrew and spoke to um, the Greek professor at CBTS, and he pointed me to an academic article which goes into the ancient Greek view of uh, sexuality, actually, and reproductive organs, which is fascinating and michael heiser i know has referred to or written an academic article um exploring that even further but i don't know i thought i'd give it a try well
0: um, uh, well uh, you you use the name there that makes me go "Mm okay um but uh other than that um uh I I, I, like. Like I said, there. I'm sure there are numerous in-depth discussions of what practice is being referred to here. We have Uh no such practice. uh, Whether that that, that's referring to you know what what practice that is actually referring to. Um, My concern with Heiser is uh, elsewhere. Maybe he's spot on on this, but I've not found it to be spot on on a whole lot of things. So um, I would just throw that warning out there uh, just in case.
3: Yeah, I I understand and I have uh watched a lot of your programs and you've expressed that same caution with Heiser. It it wasn't uh it wasn't Michael Heiser's uh perspective or article that got me thinking about that. It was another article from another institution that okay. uh my Greek and Hebrew prof sent me. Okay. But um yeah, well, thank you so much for uh taking my call and I by the way, I've uh, been listening to all the manichism beat programs, and I'm looking forward to seeing it all wrapped up.
0: <laughs> Everybody's looking forward to seeing it all wrapped up. Uh, I'm sure. I'm no. sure. I'm sure Ken Wilson is really looking forward to seeing it all wrapped up too. So,
3: <laughs> no. In, so, so in, am I. In all seriousness, not not because I haven't enjoyed it, but because like we're coming to the
0: end. Yes. Is it, this yes. Is the home stretch got, run. Got to get there sometime. Yeah, definitely. All right.
3: Thank you so much. Th- thanks for Dr. your call. Mike. All
0: right. God bless. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, don't get me into the uh, into the head covering stuff. Just not, no, no, don't Thank you. I'm um, I'm not interested in the the wars that come come out of that. Uh, by the way, um, uh, there was a tweet uh, that was posted on. Uh, um, well, it has to be posted on Twitter, does <laughs> I was I was going to try to log on to uh, this parlor thing. I right uh, not me. it would never it it just kept. Just put me into an infinite loop. Never let me in. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, evidently they don't want me. So it's like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, But uh, 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 Anthony Vitolo put a comment up... 238 years ago, we froze... This may have been Facebook. Uh, we, Yeah, it was Facebook. We froze and starved in order to defeat the largest military force on Earth to build a free nation. And you surrendered it because you're afraid to get sick. Um, and I had commented upon that, and a fellow by the name of Vern Hall said that Anthony gets a free meal in Johnson City, Tennessee, for an honorary mention on the dividing line of that comment. So... Uh, Vern, you owe Anthony a free meal in Johnson City, uh, Tennessee for an honorary mention on the dividing line for what he said. There you go. <laughs> how many mentions and how many meals? How many mentions and how many meals? It was always in the singular. So there's really... No, can't go there. I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. So we, uh, I, I had to make a, a note of that uh, or I would never have remembered it, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, And then... Uh, uh, I I think I did yeah I, I think I saved it um uh, to my uh, to uh Dropbox here let me see if it's uh if it's still if it's still there Uh no no it's not Huh Anyway uh Governor Cuomo has has made face masks mandatory if you go out in public I just wanted to find out if that was in a particular area because let's just let me just make a quick comment. Um, what what would be tough about this? What what? Why would this? Yeah. Why would this be difficult? How about you? Because we have this data, we can do this. How about we map the places in the United States that have extremely high. Densities of people. Okay, like, like, like Manhattan going out onto the island. Not all the way. Now, if you've been on Long Island, you know that the western part of the island is not like the eastern part of the island. There is a huge density of people over here, but not over here. New York State, you've got the city, and then you've got rural farming places. So how about some common sense and saying if there is this density of people and these numbers of infections that you wear face masks, but a farmer in Nebraska on his plow does not need to wear a face mask. And he doesn't need to wear a face mask at Walmart or McDonald's or any place else in Nebraska for that matter. It's insane. In fact, if you wear a face mask in your car, I'm concerned about you. I'm a little worried that you you know, you that may you know bump up into your eyes. You won't see where you're going. Who knows? I I don't know. But I see people driving around with face masks today, and I'm just going, um, okay. I mean, I hate them. I detest them. I I feel like I'm going to die in them. And I had to wear one on the flights that I took recently. Um, And I've read a lot of stuff about this, and I'm definitely on the side of this is a complete waste of everything. Um, But, hey, if it makes you feel better, great, fine, wonderful. But when the government starts telling a farmer in rural New York that he has to wear a face mask to go into the hardware store we've we've discovered that this isn't about a virus anymore it's about something else it's really about something else and it is it's very much about something else one other comment before i dive back into wilson no nobody else saw this (laughs) okay um but it really caught my to just boom like i had once again and this has gotten me into trouble so many times. So, I mean I I posted a bunch of stuff on Twitter over the past uh, 48 hours that just should have resulted in uh, us having to fight our way out of the mob outside the um, outside the office. Um but we don't live in Minneapolis so that's not what's going on. Um I hate to see that in my uh, my home my the town of my birth. Um but yeah, I was born in Minneapolis. Anyway, um uh I had, you know, allegedly yesterday, using certain numbers, uh, we passed 100,000 deaths in the United States due to COVID-19. Now I question some of those numbers. We have, we already know that some states have had to revise their numbers because they had included a number of gunshot victims in their COVID numbers. And well, I think he coughed before he died, so therefore uh, must be must be uh, COVID. Um, but let's just take the number it's a nice round number let's let's say 100,000 and as normal i pointed out if you're if you're looking at msnbc especially even fox did this they've they've stopped doing it now but even fox did this you'd have this tally board upper right hand corner of the screen and global cases us cases global deaths us deaths It's in red. You can't avoid it. It's in your face constantly. That's all they're talking about. And there's never any context. And I'm afraid that if you asked any American citizen walking down the street today, if they would stop and pull their mask down to talk to you or try to talk to you through the mask, which... Free, will will result in numerous miscommunications, I can assure you of that. Um, you would find that almost no one in the United States has any idea how many people die in the United States every year. Just, just no idea. So so they have no idea how many per day per week per month. and it varies obviously. It's not like every week is the exact same number, but it doesn't vary that much. It's pretty consistent throughout the year. No one ever talks about those numbers. No one ever talks about the 600,000 people who die of heart disease, the almost 700,000 who die of cancer. Um, No, those numbers are are unknown. The, The nearly 3 million people and so as a result, 100,000 in the mind of the vast majority of people is 100,000 healthy people who would have lived another 30 years if it hadn't been for this dratted disease. And so that's the population of small cities. We have to, we have to shut everything down and put the entire globe into a depression uh, so that doesn't ever happen again. And that's the thinking that has prevailed. That, that's how it's been done. And so what I did is I pointed out how many, Just I've got the numbers, I pointed out how many people through the end of May of 2020 would have died of this disease and that disease and that disease and that disease on an, in a normal year. And many of them were more than 100,000. And... Then I asked, "Where are the clocks in media for these things? Why is it just one disease? Why, why, why isn't it tuberculosis and meningitis and and Alzheimer's and and cancer and heart disease and all the rest of this stuff? Why aren't there any clocks for that? It's just this one thing. Have you have you thought about this? And so I." talked about how many people would have died up until this point. Well, somebody, I don't remember who it was, but somebody pointed something out that I found fascinating. Because he didn't pick up on this, or it might have been a she, I don't know, but I thought it was he. He didn't pick up on this, didn't say anything about it. But it caught me. And he said, well, actually, the CDC says we're about 66,000 deaths ahead of what the normal projections would be For a regular mortality year. At this point. Hmm. Now think about that for a moment. Because see as soon as I heard that. My mind automatically goes. But there's a hundred thousand. Deaths. It says being claimed. That's not taking into consideration. Any of the extra mortality. That is resulting from. Missed cancer screenings. And and heart stuff, and suicides, and everything else that is not a result of COVID-19, but a result of the panic about COVID-19. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I'm seeing, finally starting to see, it's starting to punch its way through the, the, the panic barrier. People saying, I have loved ones that are dying of other diseases, but because of the COVID panic, I can't even go see them. And they can't get proper treatment. I mean, the number of people that will die from that, no one will ever see. There's, there's no category for that. There's no category for that. So those numbers should be subtracted from the COVID numbers, but they're not. Or added to the COVID numbers, as this is what happens when you massively overreact and jump off the cliff and go, we must be safe. You jump in front of a freight train. That'll make me safe. <laughs> um, the guy that was about to stab me won't get me because I jumped in front of the freight train. Oh, okay, yeah, that works. That's what panic does, is makes you think that way. But there was something else. Why isn't it 100,000 more? Why is it only 66? That's only two-thirds. And I realized why. What that means is, of the 100,000, 34,000 of those 100,000 would not have lived to this point in time anyway. In other words, what have we learned? Average age, 81, degree, 81. How many have other complicating factors, mega complicating factors, almost all of them? So, that number tells you that one third of the numbers that are being counted would not have even lived to this point without COVID 19. COVID 19 simply took the place of other mechanisms that normally bring about mortality every single year, and no one ever even talks about it. It's never up on the right-hand corner of your screen. It doesn't show up in in your notifications every five minutes on your phone, but it happens, it has happened every single year you've been alive. And no one sits back and goes, "Huh, I wonder why it's happening now. Could the complete reorientation of our entire culture have anything to do with this at all? Oh no, You're put, you are better put your tin forehead on, go start watching Alex Jones now. If you even ask the question, if you even go, this seems very strange, it does not seem balanced. It's not balanced, and there's a reason for it. But I saw no one... Even, and I think the guy that pointed out, that actually, there's been 66,000 more deaths. I would sort of go, and so if there's been 100,000, have you thought through what that might mean? No, that's no, no, no discussion whatsoever. It's just like, think about what that means. If those 66,000 are due to COVID-19 and not, it's not 100,000, that means one third of COVID deaths would not have lived to this point. This year, no matter what. And that fits exactly with the earliest data that we got. Remember the early days, that first week or so? There was that one website that was primarily based on data that was coming out of Italy. Remember that? It was a really well done website. It's just great graphs and, and all the rest of that stuff. They were proven right in almost everything that they said. You, you, were, t- you were called a conspiratorialist if you cited them and blah, 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 blah. blah. Everything they said has panned out to be exactly. Right, as far as the numbers were concerned. And what they pointed out was that for that, for that, theirs was over uh, 85%. I'm just going off. I could look it back up. I saved the screenshots, but I have to go find them. But over 85% were people who had numerous other underlying conditions which can cause mortality. And so here's the question to think about. Let's say there ends up being 200,000 before this thing runs its course. How many of those, let's say say this this goes through, let's say it goes for another year. So a year and a half. How many of the 200,000 would have lived to the end of that time period with or without COVID? That's the question. That's a meaningful question. If you say, it doesn't matter, every life is precious. No, listen, think for just a second. What are the costs that you are proposing? I was just talking to a nice lady on Twitter right before the program started. And she's about my age. We're about the same age. And she has asthma and some other stuff. And she was basically saying, no, we we need to do this. And, And I mentioned the pandemic of late 68 to early 70s. She says, yeah, I got sick during that time. And then she made a comment and I said, so you're actually saying we should have shut down in 1960? Because I, I I made the comment. I said, we had a pandemic going on in 1969. We also went to the moon. That's when we landed. That's when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. 1969. And she said, "Well, it only would have been, been delayed a few months." And so I was like, "So you're telling me we should have shut down back then? Moon landing's not worth a life?" And I was like, "There's, there is the exact picture of what has changed." I keep telling a friend of mine. He keeps looking back at the nation as it once was. And says it's gonna. We're all gonna recover. It's gonna, we're, every, everything's gonna be good. And I'm like, the nation has changed. And here's where it is. There's where it is. You actually now have people saying, yeah, we we should have. And you, you need to realize if they had shut down Apollo, then it probably wouldn't have happened. The the delays probably would have pr- pretty much ended things. Because that cause, and once you start doing it, have you already started seeing? I started seeing this morning the stuff about second wave yep. aimed at october yep. i keep telling you wait for the october surprise wait for the october surprise it's a coming it's a coming and we're going to be told we got to shut it all down again it's it's going to hit you it's like it, you you and i actually i think some governors are just hoping they can hold on till then saying so just keep it constantly shut down just pff, never never open up again what
4: Remember, two weeks right. came a month. Then two months. Yep. And here we are. The, they've moved the goalposts around so many times we can't even find them. Nope.
0: And there are no goalposts. The goalpost no goal goal is they, socialism. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and it's just constantly further, further, further down the road. Nope. And I mean, come on. June is Monday. This is crazy that we have come this far. I know. and yet they're still propagating it.
0: and it's it and they're done, they're not done but you you it right. works so well that once once it once we told them we will do this we will you you have said it before somehow some way
4: our generation failed to pass along that intrepid thought mechanisms to our children
0: yep the intre- well look Look, the reason for this is, quite honestly, is in academia for decades now, uh, it's been hate America, hate America, hate America. Well, Um, we we both know... and, And by extension, hate the worldview that formed America. Right, right.
4: We both know that the generation that preceded us were the ones out with long hair, smoking dope, doing Woodstock, all that stuff. And when those people went out and got a haircut, cleaned themselves up, they went and started teaching at the schools. Right. Right. That's
0: That's actually our generation, whether you want to admit it or not. I mean, they were 10 years older than us, but that's still pretty much the same group, unfortunately. Uh, Because my parents were, you know, they were married in the 50s. So they were the Elvis Presley generation, the baby boomers right after World War II. Anyway, um... I wasn't going to spend that much time, but it just caught me that here's someone wanting to argue the point with the numbers throughout a number that I'm like, if that's true, what does it mean? And what will it mean in June of 2021? And let's say the number is 200,000 by then, Um, will anyone take the time to calculate How many of those 200,000 would have died of something other than COVID-19 by that time? And then go, is that enough to destroy the entire economic fabric of the world with the resultant um, death and mayhem and violence and disease and end of research into other diseases and everything else that goes with it? Will that have been worth it? There's what we should be talking about, but nobody's talking about it. Yeah, those will <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. well, that it, there it, 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 it there is there. It has been observed that that about the only way to get mentioned when you die right now is if you die of COVID. If you don't die of anything other than that, because no one's going to care, they're not going to say anything about it. So, yeah, that does happen. Okay. Anyway. All right. Um. Shifting gears. Uh, <laughs> oh man, there is just um so much going on. And um it is sad to see uh I'm not even sure what that means. Let me just mention something. I um Dr. Brian Lawritz, fairly well-known social justice promoter. Um posted the picture of Shalvin the Minnesota former police officer who killed the man on the street very obvious i mean i i don't know how you can watch that without recognizing the animus on his part very obvious extremely obvious and i'm i i will be surprised if the sun goes down today he hasn't been arrested uh needs to be um Though I would have some comments about uh, our justice system and how unbiblical it is. Because biblically he should either be executed or he should have to work the rest of his life for that man's family. But putting him in slavery and charging the rest of us for it? Where did that ever come from? Just something to think about. It's what I was raised with, and what you're raised with, you just go, that's what I'm accustomed to, I've never even thought about it. But there were no penitentiaries in Mosaic Law. There was either restitution, and you worked for the other person, uh, or execution. And um, anyway, let's talk about justice some other time. But uh, Brian Loretz, um posted this with the comment, this is why I didn't sign that quote "social gospel end quote statement. Now, my assumption, everybody else's assumption was that this was a social gospel the gospel and social justice statement that I was involved with. So I just retweeted part of the picture um, with a single quote from the statement, from right at the beginning of the statement. We affirm that God created every person equally in his own image. As divine image bearers, all people have inestimable value and dignity before God and deserve honor, respect, and protection. Everyone has been created by God and for God. So the reason you didn't sign it was what again? Um, But like I said, there is a lot of uh, virtue signaling going on, not just face masks, but in regards to the Minneapolis situation. Um, and then someone named Kwabena uh, Duku uh, replying to me, and this is one of the things I bugs me about Twitter. He says, God does not claim people outside of the kingdom like this man. Amen. And I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. Uh, is that about me? Is that about the cop? It, I, I don't... I, I'm... Kwabena. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and unfortunately... Uh, You know, I don't know. Uh, So I see there's a bunch of stuff going on here uh, that I'll have to look at later on uh, in regards to some comments that were were made. But obviously, we've all been watching the uh, looting going on, the stuff in the Target stores um, going on up there, and... uh, just after the program started, I saw a video come across, it was actually distracting because it stayed up on my screen for a while, of um, someone trying to back their car into discount, through discount tires, you know, the rolling door type thing. I guess they wanted to steal some tires or something like that. I don't know. But I guess the place is just melting down. And uh, I'm sorry? Oh. Well, i I don't know, um, but um, hope and pray for peace. And uh, it just is a reminder of how thin the veneer of civilization is over the wicked hearts of men. Um, every single one of those looters is demonstrating by their looting that they care nothing about the guy who died. Care nothing about it. Don't have a concern about justice. Don't go out there and, and march in that parade And then turn off to the right and go burn a McDonald's down. Just, anyway, there you go. I should just, I should just minimize (laughs) Twitter. Get out of there. I'll not get anything else done if I keep looking over there. Okay. Okay. I had, at some point over the past three weeks, started reading through, once again, I've already laid this out there is a conclusion section in, if you're, if you're new to the program for some reason, um, we were challenged uh, by a group that calls themselves provisionists who seemingly have become very deeply connected with the free grace, anti-lordship, anti-repentance movement uh, to respond to a, uh, to a book which has moved all the way over here to a book titled The Foundation of Augustinian Calvinism. Well, actually, we had people calling about this book initially. And so when I got hold of it, and I I listened to it on a ride one day, it's not very long, it's uh, only hundred less than 100, 118 pages. Um, fairly not non-dense print, so it's not long. Well as soon as I started pointing out problems in it, just errors in and argumentation and, and things like that, we got pushback that said, no 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 that's that's not for scholars. What you what you need is Kenneth Wilson's dissertation. Well I had looked it up and it was nearly a hundred bucks and I'm like, given what I was seeing in the book, I was like, I, I, I don't know that I want to spend that amount of money. Given the argumentation I'm seeing, well, Dr. Wilson sent it to us. And once I started seeing what the dissertation was about, then we bought the dissertation online. We bought the electronic version so that at least Dr. Wilson gets his money for that. Um, and we were challenged. We were told no one can respond. This, is, this, is, this man is the greatest living expert on Augustine in the world. No one knows more about Augustine than he does. He, he got a DPhil from Oxford. Uh, for this dissertation, and and you guys can't touch it a 10-foot pole. So we have been spending a fair amount of time touching it with a 10-foot pole. And poking holes through it that are about 10 feet wide, because it is very poorly argued. Very poorly written, very poorly argued. It is a theory that to my knowledge commands almost no uh, following in scholarship at all. It's not that accusing Augustine of Manichaean influences is anything new. That that took place during his life. Um, and someone pointed out that, remember Steve Gregg? That's one of Steve Gregg's big things, is he goes after Augustine uh, for being a Manichaean and, and all the rest of this type of stuff. So it's, it's, that's nothing new. But what is new is the specific application of a concept called dupied. Um and it had it's basically the the theory that that Augustine, once he began arguing against Pelagius, Augustine had a, had two major controversies in his life, some minor ones, but two major controversies in his life. This is something I've been lecturing about for years. Um, the first is the Donatist controversy, which is about the nature of the church, the authority of the church, sacraments, um, things like that that's, When he is first elected bishop, this is something he has to deal with a great deal. Uh, And then you had, toward the end of his life, the Pelagian controversy, where he is involved in the battle with Pelagius over the nature of the will and things like that. The theory is that so as to um, fight Pelagius, not only did Augustine develop a never heard of before baptismal theology, and, and this is clearly untrue uh, from any meaningful uh, study of church history, um, but that he also went back to a Manichaean understanding of this dupi, this uh, this divine unilateral predestination of individuals' eternal destinies, And that that then was basically a direct line straight to Calvin and to Reformed theology. Um, With the result that, and I I have this, I just have this sitting on my uh, desktop so that anytime I need it, we can just simply play it. Here's an interview from 2018 with Leighton Flowers asking a question of... Ken Wilson, listen to what Ken Wilson's response
4: is. Say that Augustine was the first to clearly articulate these views. Um, it, that coupled with what you found, it seems to be an insurmountable uh, argument against a more deterministic understanding of the text.
3: Yes, if you want to remain a traditional Christian. If, if you want to go uh, be a Manichaean Christian with Augustine, um, then it's fine to, to take a deterministic view. But for a traditional Christian, you should hold a free will view.
0: So you have something called a Manichean Christian with Augustine, if you are a Calvinist, if you're Reformed. Um and you'll notice that Leighton thinks that this this um understanding of the early church somehow becomes the lens through which exegesis is to be done, too. Which is a extremely problematic element of this that we have we've only touched on a little bit, but it's but it's there. Um so more and more people, not only in the English-speaking world, but it's getting elsewhere, are now touting this as, see? Uh, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say about Reformed theology, because you're just simply a secret Manichaean. And so, over the past couple of months, we have been uh, doing what um, almost no one else has been doing. There's uh, been a um, couple Lutheran guys um, who have been especially focused upon the sacramentology issue, baptism issue, and um, I've been much more focused upon these issues, but in reading the dissertation uh, have encountered just numerous problems, um, numerous, numerous problems that we have been documenting over the past period of time. Along in that um, period, uh, I have identified two sections of the dissertation that we need to finish reading through and responding to they're both conclusions and the first is the conclusion to chapter one and in chapter one you have the philosophical religious context of Augustine where you have a discussion of Gnosticism, Stoicism, Cicero, uh, Judaism which would include the Qumran sect that is how you say Qumran uh, Neoplatonism uh, which would uh, so later development also around the time of Augustine and uh, then Manichaeism. And so we have spent a great deal of time explaining Gnosticism, Valentinian Gnosticism, Manichaeism. You've learned... I talked to a friend who said this morning he feels like he has a PhD in Gnosticism now uh, from listening to The Dividing Line. And look, if you have listened to each one of these programs, you have learned much more about Gnosticism, Valentinian Gnosticism, Manichaeism, than 99.98% of seminary graduates in the United States. There is no question about that. If you are if you are studying church history, then no, you're going to have to go into more depth than that. But for the vast majority of people, who graduate with an MDiv or something like that. They take one, maybe two church history classes. I can assure you, you have now heard much more about these. Uh, we we spent not only that, but in the vast majority of seminary classes, you don't have time. You may be assigned some stuff, but we have read through portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the hymns that were found there to, again, reading what Wilson said, going to the source itself, and then saying, is that an accurate uh, understanding, uh, and providing a response to that. Um, so, uh, what I want to do is I want to finish up reading the summary, the conclusion to that first chapter, and then looking at the conclusion of the dissertation itself that ties all of these threads together. Because a lot of the argumentation in the dissertation is about editing that Augustine made to his own books, and when certain portions of certain books would have been written, and did he go back and change things, and and stuff like that, that to be honest with you, um, I'm not going to invest my time in while working on my own PhD um, uh, at this point in time, because it's not relevant to the abuse of history that the dupied theory, and that's his own choice. He, he, he said he coined that phrase, so and he uses it hundreds of times. When I first got the PDF, I thought I knew exactly how many, because I just put the phrase in. Bah! Because of the use of, uh, of the m dash, it's hundreds of times, over 200 times in the dissertation he uses that, that phraseology. That's his phraseology. It is the abusive history that that represents, the inaccuracy that it represents, the fact that it's an indefensible concept that we have wanted to be focused upon. So, with all of that, um, I continue on page 37. I've started 35. We've looked at things. Just looking at 30, uh, 37. Stoic providence was a micromanaged predetermination of every detailed cosmic event. Cicero, or you've heard also pronounced Cicero, there's different ways of pronouncing Latin. Uh, achieved compatibilism by limiting providence and rejecting divine foreknowledge. He simultaneously embraced both fate and free will by conceiving a direct, divi- a direct divine intrusion into the human mind, manipulating the inept fallen will to a correctly reasoning will, thereby allowing a, quote, free choice, end quote. According to Alexander of Aphrodisius, the Stoics, especially Chrysippus, developed the theory that persons are incapable of choosing freely, yet despite this lack of choice, freedom to choose remains with each person. Translating this into modern terms, redefined free will, achieving compatibilism, remains despite being chained to compulsion, non-free free free will. Now, I have complained about the uh, uh, clarity of the writing all along. I complain about it again, but uh, the point is that I will not sit here and pretend to be an expert in Stoicism. There are very few people who really are. You have to be a hard core philosophy type guy to want to invest the energy to really come to grips with the various forms of Stoicism because as with any philosophical system, you know, Chrysippus might represent one form of Stoicism, but there were there were others. Um, especially when we look back in history, you might have... We have to be really careful about this, because you might have one person whose writings have somehow survived, and because of that, we have him define that position. If you had lived at the day, you might have realized that that guy... Okay, he's written some books, but he wasn't nearly as important. This other guy, who actually really does define that position... But his books don't survive for 2,000 years, and therefore, we end up with a skewed understanding because of the nature of the sources. Anyway, let's just be very clear here. Stoicism does not have a sovereign decree of a personal God. The deterministic elements of Stoic philosophy are mechanistic they are due to the nature of the creation and even at this point when you start look it up do, if you don't believe me do go to go to the google scholar put in stoic determinism start reading a few a few papers and you'll go oh <laughs> it's it's because there is a completely we're not when I say a completely different cosmo- cosmology, it, it it's not the differences between Manichaeism and Gnosticism and Valentinian Gnosticism and different myths and stuff like that. No, this is a completely different way of looking at reality itself and the the relationship of mind and matter and all of this. And so when the Stoics made the assertion that what is has to be the way that it is, their reasoning is not because there is a divine decree that determines people's individuals de- individual destinies. There's nothing personal about that. And it's not just fate. It's not some simplistic idea that there are fates running around that determine it either. And it's not a modern scientific idea that, well... Uh, because of your genetics, or because of the, the, the rules, the laws of nature, it's not even that. It, it is much more complex than even all of those things. But it would be more in that realm, it would be more the natural result of laws than it would be any type of expression of divine will, by any stretch of the imagination. Now, those laws are extremely complex and don't really map with how you and I look at the world. That's why I would say trying to explain stoic cosmology is just as difficult as trying to help Westerners understand the Eastern way of thinking when we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy and stuff like that. Because when you're talking to an audience that just doesn't, we don't have that kind of background to draw from, it's hard to come up with illustrations. It, we we can't learn by analogy. The foundations are very very different. So, um, but what we see again with Wilson here is he takes the modern terminology of determinism, decrees, um, choosing, free will, things like that, and he's trying. He's clearly seeking to forge connections to what would be today Reformed theology. Rather than letting the Stoics speak as the Stoics and defining the terminology within a Stoic framework, which is very, 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 very different. That's not explained here. Um, but you end up with this non-free free will, which is meant to be a, mock, a mocking term. But, it, but it's Augustine's conversion from traditional free choice to non-free free will is the title of the, of the work. Because very clearly, he does not believe that that can be made a meaningful concept. So the whole concept of compatibilism, the whole concept that you can have a divine decree, and yet that creates time itself where man's decisions are meaningful, he just rejects its possibility. But the Stoics didn't do that in the first place. They did not have a personal God who had a revelation of decree of himself to his own glory. It just wasn't there, just not a part of the system. Uh, so I continue on. Although some scholars categorize Stoics as compatibilists, determinism and moral responsibility are inseparably linked, presupposing and demanding each other. Notice that's that's a criticism. That's his perspective. Um, uh, concealing fated free will. That sentence doesn't even really make much sense. Fate controls every minuscule event or occurrence in universe In a moral imperative, although the person had no possibility of actuating an opportunity, free will remains solely by definition. There are references given to each one of these that no explanation is provided as to how these uh, references are meant to turn these sentences that don't have any relationship to the sentence before in anything meaningful. Uh, The whole dissertation is like this. This The section on the dating of Augustine's edits isn't. That's actually better because you're not dealing with this type of stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, the ancient Indo-Mesopotamian religion, the Qumran community, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, and Neoplatonism all embraced similar divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies concepts. Well, so this is, this is, here's, this is why I wanted to, this is central to the affirmation, the assertion. If you want to know what underlies the sound file I played a few moments ago, here it is. And it'll be repeated in the final conclusions. That's why I'm letting the original sources speak here. The original source, in this case, being Wilson himself. So, if you've been enduring up till now, try to tune in, because this is key. This is really, really central. This is where he's actually laying it out. So you have Indo-Mesopotamian religion. You have the Quran community. You have Gnosticism. There are lots of different kinds. You have Manichaeism, also different kinds. You have Neoplatonism. All embraced similar dupied concepts. Well, what are they? Number one, humanity's fall occurred by free will after which free will was lost. This is false. False. It's it's just it's like saying the Arizona Cardinals have won the last five Super Bowls false. Why are you looking at me like that? That's really false? (laughs) Well, I would have to say the Cleveland Browns have won the last that that makes it really, really That's right. Um, this is just humanity. We've already pointed out to even use the term "fall," to use the term "free will," given the differences between these groups. I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to about Indo Mesopotamian religion, unless it's the earlier forms of what feeds into Manichaeism. But if 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 you are the result of the mating of demons who grew out of sperm and aborted things falling on the earth from divine beings that got sexually excited by an androgynous being from the realm of light, I'm sorry, that's not the fall of Adam and Eve. There's no way to make a connection here. This is violation of every cat every logical category problem that man's ever seen. It wow. Uh, so that's not a a free will fall, and in fact, in Gnosticism, Manichaeism, in Valentinian Gnosticism, the actual taking of the fruit is a good thing. The Christ Spirit is spent. Is sent because Gnosis is a good thing. So, so number one in the definition of dupe, none of the people who held any of these views would have agreed. Well, maybe the Qumran community, may, maybe the Qumran community, I suppose that would that, be one, but none of the rest of them would even have a category to even work with. Number two, unavoidable, divinely fated actions remain punishable. Again, just looking for a meaningful way of understanding these statements. That would be true of Qumran, because it's, it would be true of Qumran without the word Fated. That's a prejudicial term. Um, fate is impersonal; a decree is personal. If I don't care if you don't want to, you if you don't want to recognize those differences, the differences actually exist. But unavoidable actions remain punishable. This confuses the eternal and the temporal on the Christian level. Leaving all those things aside, how do you even have a meaningful? understanding of punishable between these different perspectives punishable by whom when when in manichaeism and in gnosticism the physical realm at the end of time is destroyed either after all the light particles are removed or whatever other strange forms of eschatology valentinianism had and whatever when, when the physical realm is dissolved in Gnosticism, it, it, in Manichaeism. It's not dissolved. It's just separated from the realm of light back to the way things were, because they're two equal, two equal realms. How is that punishment? How, how is that punishment? Punishment on the basis of what? You see, the only way that for punishment to be relevant is if there is an overarching law that governs all of this. You don't have that in Gnosticism or Manichaeism. It's just not there. Um, I'm not sure how the Neoplatonists would deal with this, to be honest with you. Or if they would even have a basis for a concept of punishment in that way. But, but unavoidable, divinely fated actions remain punishable. That would be understood by each one of these groups in a completely different fashion. And would be rejected by reformed people entirely because of its aberrant assertion. Number three. <clears throat> by the way, there are five points. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, the five points would be Hua'at... <laughs> See, that, they couldn't even come up with a tulip. I mean, at least we can come up with nice flowers. They have hua'at. Um Sounds Klingon. We really didn't need to bring a completely different topic into this particular subject. It's tough enough to keep the Neoplatonists and the and the and the folks, the Essenes, um going, uh, but throw in Worf and we've we've lost all of it. Um So, number three, a scare quote, dead will scare quote, required God's extreme grace to resurrect dead souls in order for the unilaterally predetermined elect to receive salvation. Once again, a surface-level attempt to take a bad representation of modern reform theology and read it back into ancient perspectives none of whom could have understood what was being said all of whom would have defined the key terms of this torturous sentence in completely different ways so dead will um, what, what what a dead will mean to a Manichaean over against a Sethian Gnostic, over against a Valentinian Gnostic, over against a Neoplatonist, over against the Indo-Mesopotamian, over against one of the Essenes? Each one would define the nature of man differently, will differently, Um, to say dead will. How do you define that when are we talking about The Fragment of Light? Is that ever dead? Um, what, What about amongst the Gnostics? Is the result of Yaltaba Oath's exercise of divine power he received from his mother, Sophia, able to create a true soul? Why does Yaltaba Oath seek to rape uh, Eve to get the divine power from her how does that how does that relate to then the nature of Adam and Eve and their wills and it's a transparent effort to find completely bogus parallels this is this is the same stuff that is used Mentioned this yesterday, the same type of argumentation is used to try to draw parallels to the Jesus story um, that you'll find splattered all over the internet on YouTube and everything else, uh, proving that Christianity is not unique, etc., etc., etc. This is the same kind of reasoning that's being used. Uh, God's extreme grace. You, you could not provide a meaningful connection between what that would mean to Calvin and Augustine back to the Manichaeans, the Gnostics, the Valentinians, the Neoplatonists, or the Stoics. They would have no idea. The community at Qumran, because they have God's scriptures, and they actually believe God's scriptures... Um, they would have a, a foundation for an understanding of that. Definitely. The rest of them wouldn't. Wouldn't. Uh, number four, although scare quote offered scare quote to all, only the elect could receive faith as God's gift. Uh, again, meaning of elect, completely different amongst all these groups. Um, faith, different definition. What does it mean that it's God's gift? Why did lots of church fathers before Augustine believe that Ephesians two said that faith is God's gift? These are questions that must be asked. But although quote offered to all, this is again is a very poor effort to read reformed theology a badly framed reformed theology back into this context to create the very connections that then he goes voila look at all my study look at these connections yeah he started with them he asserted with them st- asserted them from the start there was no there was no meaningful argumentation before this in the summary statements that actually establishes any of this stuff. It's just simply asserted. It's, it's, it's a bunch of assertions. And my understanding of scholarship may be different than other people's, but my understanding is when you write a doctoral dissertation, you uh, you actually have to back up what you're asserting and argue for it in a meaningful and consistent fashion. So, uh, Finally, number five, the one slash God slash Redeemer infuses the gift of love instantaneously resurrecting dead wills when he gave what he commanded God could command what he willed now that the last two phrases are a paraphrase of Augustine so if you're if you're paraphrasing Augustine as a part of what all these other groups allegedly believed, you haven't established that yet you have not established a similarity of of terminology that that this summary would actually be meaningful in any of these, haven't established any of that yet but when you actually paraphrase Augustine and then make that a part of your opening summary of the first chapter then you're going to supposedly argue for it later on that's called arguing a circle Okay, you've already you've already made your your conclusion, and shockingly, you're going to come to the same conclusion at the end of everything too. How did that work? Oh, well, it's because it's not being argued appropriately, by any stretch of the imagination. So the one God Redeemer infuses the gift of love instantaneously, resurrecting dead wills. How does that how does that happen in Gnosticism? Um... Well, and it would be different between Sethian Gnosticism and Valentinian Gnosticism. So, how does that exactly work? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think they would have understood anything that was being said there. And even if you could come up with a way to make it relevant to them, that would require changing the meanings of the words, so it's no longer relevant to Reformed theology. Trying to maintain this connection... Is simply impossible. It's not done here. Um, so we, so there is the assertion at the. This is page um, under the conclusion. This is page thirty-seven. Um, no, I'm sorry, page thirty-eight, and this is definitional to what the rest of the work is going to be. What's going to say? And it's simply wrong from the start. Foundationally corrupt. Foundationally corrupt. Uh, these are impressive commonalities in sharing Stoic type providence and divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies. Well, no, they're not, actually. They're fake. You may assert them, you haven't grounded it, and there are so many obvious category errors that. Again, most of us are just sitting around going, did anyone read this? Uh, what, what happened here? I don't get it. Christian heretics empowered Gnosticism. Valentinian, should be Valentin- Valentinus, appealed to Scripture, Romans 11, proving God offered salvation to all, but only the elect with freed wills could receive it. Only the elect with freed wills. So are you connecting the spiritual with the elect? Over against the sukakos? Because, as I pointed out yesterday, there was actually discussions amongst Valentinians as to whether uh, the soulish could receive the gnosis and therefore receive a form of return to the one. But notice, uh, proving God offered salvation to all. God offering salvation has a meaning for a provisionist that it didn't have for a Valentinian. Different meanings. Different context. Certainly different for the Gnostic. Uh, But only the elect. There is no decree of elect that determines the identity of the elect. With freed wills, could receive it. Freed wills from what? Valentinus taught it was Jesus that helped Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit. The Gnostic Basilides claimed initial faith itself was God's gift, as did numerous other people in that day. Paganism contributed to Plotinus's one. Remained just and good by definition despite his inexplicable arbitrary injustice. Um, paganism contributed. It doesn't even make sense in English. It doesn't. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll read it again. Paganism contributed as Plotinus' one, remained just and good by definition despite his inexplicable arbitrary injustice. So, who's the his? I'd assume Plotinus is one, but it could be Plotinus. What is what did paganism contribute? Okay, divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies appears inevitable in any philosophy when a theory of totalitarian providence demands God must resurrect the totally incapacitated will, non-free free free will, and infuse salvific faith as a gift of grace. Now, what's he describing here? He's describing Reformed theology. So, what's he trying to do? He's trying to forge that connection. What's the result? He's taking his understanding and, and fabricating Connections amongst categories that are completely disparate from one another, foundationally, so as to create this idea of the of the connection via Augustine through to Reformed theology, um, appears inevitable in any philosophy when a theory of totalitarian providence. I would assume that totalitarian providence is. Sp- Supposed to be something like Ephesians it works all things out of the counsel of his will. Psalm 135.6, Daniel 4. Is that what that's about? God's sovereign decree determining the very fabric of time, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, I would assume, demands God must resurrect the totally incapacitated will. You mean raised to spiritual life? Use biblical terminology? Yes, raised to spiritual life. And freed from the slavery to sin, John 8. Yep, that's what the Son can do, definitely. And infuse salvific faith as a gift by grace, if that means regeneration, the making of a new heart, taking out a heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh. If that's, if, if what you're saying is infuse would be the same thing as what we have in the prophets, I will take out a heart of stone. I will give you a heart of... Fl- if that it has to be infused, I guess. It's strange terminology, but okay. Although Duped could perhaps theoretically be held without a micromanaging direct providence, starting with the latter assumption, apparently predestines the position of divine unilateral predetermination of individualism. That appeared four times in one paragraph. Three times spelled out and once as an acronym. I wonder how long this book would be if he had just used the acronym after the first time. (laughs) Probably been 20 pages shorter. Just simply would have been much cheaper to typeset. But although Dupied could perhaps theoretically be held without a micromanaging direct providence, so without a divine decree starting with the latter assumption. Latter assumption of what? Apparently predestines the position of dupied. I'm just reading it, folks. And most of the time, it just don't make no sense. (laughs) It's just just so, so poorly written. Um, But predictably, no ancient religion or philosophy dared deny free will. Um, creative philosophical manipulations provide a semblance of free will while denying its effective capacity. So, if you don't hold to full autonomy, then you can't ever use the term free will. There, there, you can't have creaturely free will. You can't have God has autonomous will and makes man with a creaturely free will. No, it's... it's um. It's not really real. It's denying its effective capacity. Effective capacity, in other words, being fully autonomous. Even the strictest determinist retained the carcass of free will. Notice carcass of free will. There's nothing unbiased about this work. Although it had been gutted of meaningful choice as non-free free will. The public was not so gullible. Stoicism's declining popularity required Marcus Aurelius to finally soften its determinism heretical and pagan concepts of divine unilateral predetermination of individuals general eternal destinies with non-free free will were being confronted with freedom of choice by Christian authors. Dun, dun, dun. The Christians were coming with their with their um, autonomy. Well, except for those ones that we looked at earlier that believed in the elect. But anyway. Not until circa 200 CE with Alexander of uh, Afratiasis Afrodisius, aphrodisius, Aphrodisius, when we forget Aphrodisiac, did the pagan debate progress to Judeo-Christian free will? Progress to Judeo-Christian free will. To, to progress to the level of it, to the to the substance of it, what we're not told. He denounced Stoic and Neoplatonic determinism as impeding persons persons' moral development argued for a genuine alternative choice and limited providence from controlling every detail of human action. Alexander forged a compromise between the two extremes of the Epicurean denial of any divine interference with the physical world and stoic meticulous micromanaging providence, which again is not, shouldn't have a providence capital P because it's not personal. Judaism had previously held such a view, one might argue, that in addition to Alexander's peripatetic objections to Stoic blending, prior Christians' authors' philosophical refutations, Justin Martyr, Tatian, Irenaeus, Clement, had influenced pagan theological debates by 200 CE. Christians vehemently opposed the deterministic Stoic, Gnostic, Neoplatonic, and Manichaean non-free free free will. Well, you just said 200 CE. Mani was born then, so they hadn't opposed any Manichaeanism at this point. Early Christians emphatically rejected the divine unilateral predetermination of individuals' eternal destinies of heretics and pagans by hailing a Judeo-Christian residual freedom of choice in determining eternal destinies. Why? Because God's forordination to salvation occurred through foreknowledge of a human faith response, as the next chapters will demonstrate. So there you have, there you have the thesis. There, there, there you have it laid out early on. Uh, this is a person who went into this study with an absolute fixed... Uh, end point. I am going to prove that election is solely based upon God looking down the corridors of time and seeing what mankind's to do. There is no divine decree. And I am going to find divine decree in all the pagan religions uh, but not in Christianity. That, it's clear, compelling, very obvious. So what we'll do uh, next time which will not be, uh, tomorrow. Um, no program tomorrow. Sorry. I know we've been doing a lot of programs. Um, but, uh, just works out between Rich and I and stuff we're doing this weekend that that's not going to happen. So we will be starting with the conclusion, which is on page 273 and working through the conclusion Once we're done with that, it should not take all that long if I can resist going into all the background issues with with each thing. But in the process, I'll need to be producing the summary statement that we can then make, make available. Like I said, I encourage the translation of it, the posting of it, distribution of it. Just don't edit it. Just put it out there. Um, we want your help to get it out there, uh, and you know, I'd love to have a Spanish version of it and a German version of it. Um, wherever this kind of theory is being promoted as being some type of scholarship, we need to demonstrate that it's anything but serious scholarship uh, in it, when it comes to its conclusions. And um, then what are we going to do after we get done with this? I've, I've forgotten. I've forgotten. Uh, what, what, what did we used to do? So Monday, so Monday, yep. Monday will be uh, Monday will be the next uh, the next program. Yep. As far as I can tell, uh, I mean, who knows what happens over the weekend? But uh, and if that stupid green screen would ever arrive, uh, simple, uh, lost, it. lost it. Great, wonderful. You know I, it I know. I know. I know. I'm waiting for about three things from there, too. Anyway, well, thank you for sitting through a whole lot more. Like I said, you're learning about stuff you never expected to learn about, but lots of background information. Hope it's helpful to you. We will see you, Lord willing, on Monday. God bless.